0: Just as the star of Epiphany hangs over our heads here in the sanctuary, we hear again how God spoke through a star and in dreams. Let us open our ears, our minds, imagination, hearts and souls as we listen across time and space to this incredible story. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the territory of Judea during the rule of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. They asked, where is the newborn King of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east and we've come to honor him. When King Herod heard this, he was troubled and everyone in Jerusalem was troubled with him he gathered all the chief priests and the legal experts and asked them where the Christ was to be born. They said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what the prophet wrote. You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, by no means are you least among the rulers of Judah, because from you will come one who governs, who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and found out from them the time when the star had first appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search carefully for the child. When you've found him, report to me so that I too may go and honor him. When they heard the king, they went and looked. The star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother. Falling to their knees, they honored him. Then they opened their treasure chests and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Because they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back to their own country by another route. When the Magi had departed, an angel from the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod will soon search for the child in order to kill him. Joseph got up and during the night took the child and his mother to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod died. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I have called my son out of Egypt. When Herod knew the Magi had fooled him, he grew very angry. He sent soldiers to kill all the children in Bethlehem and in all the surrounding territory who were two years old and younger, according to the time that he had learned from the Magi. This fulfilled the words spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and much grieving, Rachel weeping for her children, and she did not want to be comforted because they were no more. After King Herod died, an angel from the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said, and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. Those who were trying to kill the child are dead. Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus ruled over Judea in place of his father, Herod, Joseph was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he went to the area of Galilee. He settled in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. For the good news of Jesus Christ, thanks be to God.
1: Let us pray together. God of starlight, of long nights, and cold days. Guide us, we pray, that the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts may be truly acceptable in your sight. Oh God, our rock and our Redeemer, let the people say, Amen. I love when we retell this part of the story. As if a virgin birth weren't startling enough, as if angels singing in the sky in a big chorus weren't too crazy, as if a motley, presumably smelly, band of shepherds showing up finding a baby in a feeding trough wasn't a little bit weird. Then we have the magi, these foreign visitors, mysteriously following a star, astronomers or astrologers, we're not quite sure which. And this star just seemingly stands still over the place where the Holy Family has taken refuge. I know that the poetic, fantastical beauty of the whole story we tell from Advent through Epiphany strains our 21st century hyper-rational credulity, if we let it. But it doesn't need to. As we often say, the stories are true, regardless whether they happened exactly as the Gospel writers remember them. And our job is to glean the truth and to tell these stories with our lives as humbly and as faithfully as possible. And the more we tell this story, I'm struck that the mix of the magnificent and the supernatural with the humble and gritty is the perfect blend of reimagining God with us right here on Earth. Stars still shine in our lives. Babies are still born, just as we welcomed our newest member last Sunday at 6 a.m., baby Antony. And for me, human reproduction, gestation, and birth is as crazy, fantastical, and sufficiently mirac- messy a miracle as it gets. It boggles my mind every time I hold a newborn babe. And we still have refugee families like the Holy Family in this story. When I last checked the United Nations, High Commissioner for for Refugees, there's an estimated 100 million refugees and asylum seekers in the world today. And Matthew, I wanted us to hear that whole entire chapter because Matthew tells us the beautiful story we know and love from Christmas Eve and Epiphany and turns suddenly from that poetic beauty to the grim reality. Here is this feckless thug of a king who is deeply insecure, narcissistic, and vengeful. Does it sound familiar? What we know about Herod is that he was, in fact, a great administrator. He was Arab in origin, but he practiced Judaism. He had alliances. He was very good friends and colleagues with Mark Antony and also had a friendly relationship with Julius Caesar, which is part of how he got his position. Also, his father had been in power beforehand. This is the stuff of which we watch shows like Dynasty, and Dallas, and now Succession. He built amazing fortresses and ports that you can still visit to this day in Israel, at Masada, Caesarea Maritime. When you go to the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, there are stones still in place that his builders put there. 2,000 years later, just like our faith, He also had some nine wives, including both a cousin and a niece. With six of them, he had 14 children. And under the influence of his divisive sister, he murdered his second wife, her two sons, brother, mother, and grandfather. He became increasingly mentally unstable in his 70s, at which is the time that we dropped into the story just now. And while historians outside of the gospel accounts have trouble proving the slaughter of the innocents, that edict to kill all of the children two years and younger, which of course is reminiscent of what we heard in the Exodus story of how Pharaoh treated the children of the Israelites, but most people wouldn't have put it past him. He bled the Jewish people dry with taxes in building these great monuments in places he could retreat to. And of course, we still see this kind of egotistical, narcissistic, insecure leadership in our daily news feed. We've seen it through the centuries, this kind of personal instability and bloodthirstiness. People like Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, Hitler, Stalin, Idi Amin, Pol Pot. And we have our own contemporary examples of tyrants. Vladimir Putin comes immediately to mind. And some of us are concerned that you can catch whiffs, essences, of this kind of narcissistic leadership in the performance politics we saw on display this week in the House of Representatives. Peoples whose interest is in feeding their own ego and desires for power so overwhelming that obscures any sense of what's good for the people. Because these kind of leaders that we read about, like Herod, had no real interest eventually in the people, except how they could feed their own power, which is why the heroes in the stories we tell are otherwise ordinary, everyday people living their lives, which get dramatically interrupted by God's plan. These are people who, despite however humble their worldly possessions or their socioeconomic standing, have a moral rectitude, a righteousness, a holiness that towers above the Herods and Julius Caesars of the world. And today's story reminds us of that. These exotic visitors from a foreign land who follow the star and their instincts and their dreams, a young father who listens to his dream, a young mother who listens to angels. And thinking about today, I became aware of the ways that this congregation has preached this story to me over the past several months. Some of you have heard pieces of this sermon over, holy, over the Christmas week. Some of you heard about it on Christmas Eve or in our very small Christmas Day Zoom gathering. But I thought I might try to give you the whole sermon as I know it now, as I've heard it from all of you. Let me back up a little bit to God's prep work. Because God gave us a little test a few months back with a Christmas story living in real time. About four or five years ago, a handful of you asked me if we could host Syrian families, and I tried connecting these interested folks with some ongoing efforts going on around us, but they never quite took hold. And I'll be honest, it frustrated me. I'd seen other colleagues in temples take on this plight with great dedication and really put themselves into it. And I knew that our parish had hosted a Cambodian refugee family some years before. But for some reason, it just wasn't taking. And so I had to talk down the little Herod in me and listen to God saying, Kent, the time isn't right. Just hold off. Keep praying. Keep watching and waiting. So while I was on sabbatical, actually just a few weeks after trying to climb some of Herod's monuments and fortresses, I invited my friend Lisa, a school teacher, to come and speak with us about her experience hosting refugees through her synagogue. And some of you may remember, in mid-October, she came and gave us a short account of the life-changing experience of hosting Syrian, Afghan, and now Ukrainian refugees in her her suburban guest house. And I wondered when she talked if the Holy Spirit would send off any sparks that might catch. And then 10 days later, Andre, our ministry partner in musical activism and a former refugee himself, called. He had reached out to us a year before when the Taliban was claiming power in Afghanistan to see if we we at United Parish could help some of his friends who had a music school that was being destroyed and people who were on the run. And our missions team generously and faithfully arranged for some money to be sent. I have to say, this is pretty subversive stuff, sending money to a trusted third source undermining a foreign government that's about to take power. But this time, back in October, Andre called to say that some of these friends, a young family, had somehow miraculously made it to the US-Mexico border, had just spent four days separated in detention by the US Border Patrol. We found out later that they had been given 13 minutes to make a call to find a star. And Andre was that friend who picked up the call. And when he called me, he said, they'll be arriving at Logan tomorrow morning. When they arrived, they had no clothes. Their smugglers had stolen their luggage. Rachel and Aaron and other volunteers in our thrift store gave them a shopping spree and told me that they were deeply humbled to meet in person people whose lives had only been represented to them in their newsfeed and to get some sense of the suffering and devastation that they'd experienced. And then the following Sunday, two weeks after our angel visitor, Lisa, had talked, they showed up here in worship and sat right down there, exhausted, terrorized, the young father, the pregnant mother, and a 16-month-old boy. It was this Muslim's family's first time in a Christian church. And you all gave them a warm welcome And at the end of worship, I was greeting folks, newcomers, some of our regulars, and then I came up and met the family in person, and it turned out that Alicia had stepped up as the innkeeper and said, I have room in my house, they're coming home to me. And they stayed with her and Phil, they caught their breath, their exhaustion let down, they got sick with the flu and colds and recovered under the nurturing care of that loving household. Some of us had the privilege of having dinner with them. Several others of you began providing more clothes, appliances, etc., to help them set up home. And then this collection of people, Andre, Alicia, and Phil among them, began to learn about our own tyrannical system of anti-immigration in this country, and how hard it might be for them to get asylum, and they actually were in danger of being deported back to Afghanistan, where their family is in hiding for fear of being killed. Eventually, folks helped them smuggle across the border into Canada where they could get better help and hopefully find their way to asylum, sanctuary, and safety. And some of you heard on Christmas Eve that we heard the sad news that the young father had been swimming, had a heart attack, and was brain dead, and died a few days before Christmas. And the mother's due to give in a few weeks, and we continue to help them as best we can. God keeps showing up in ways we might not expect it, in ways that the rest of the world won't notice, won't report on. And I never want us to get so caught up in our own holy acts that we pat ourselves too hard on the back. But it's good to acknowledge how God shows up, how God challenges us and how we respond and what we've learned about the way we respond and how we might do it differently next time or how we might do it the same next time. Because I believe God is always giving us pop quizzes, midterms, sometimes end-of-the-term exams, because we never graduate in this thing called the Christian faith. We're always matriculating, always studying, always learning. Perhaps we only graduate when we reach eternity's shores. Our contemporary checkpoints along the journey of faith are generally not as dramatic as angel choruses in the sky, or a fixed star over a manger, or even an infanticide by a bloody king, or even the privilege of helping a refugee family face to face. But the signs are there around us all the time. And the angels usually show up in our lives more like smelly shepherds. Or eccentric astronomers, people you might see on the bus and avoid, or humble everyday people like Mary and Joseph, who have the courage to listen to their dreams and quietly go their way, and are just trying to raise a family as humbly and quietly and as sufficiently as possible. The daily challenges we're given are often a lot smaller: the neighbor, the coworker, the family member who drives us crazy, but still deserves a kind word the homeless person who needs a new pair of gloves or at the very least a smile and a word that acknowledges their dignity and humanity. My hope and prayer for us as we move into Epiphany and then on into Lent and Eastertide is that we will keep our eyes out, our hearts open, our minds activated for the signs that God gives us that we will be gentle with ourselves and one another as we respond to them, that we will wait and watch and learn. And remember that God is always showing up, often where we least expect it.